FMX Network Production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I want to say. You know a new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's industry seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires and brought to you by Blendsall, Plum Creek Funding, Works Connection, and Fly Racing. Welcome, everybody. It is Sunday afternoon, and that means it's time for another industry seating episode. I am your host, Jason Thomas. It is Mother's Day, so I want to wish all the mothers a special day, including my own. Uh, we often overlook how special the moms are in our life, so hope everybody's having a great Mother's Day. Not a lot of news in the the motocross, supercross world, but that's okay. There have been some developments, just not all that public yet. And trust me, there is a lot going on behind the scenes every single day. It's just not always reported on or made public, etc. We can definitely talk about a little bit of that stuff. I don't have to get into specifics that are going to get me into trouble, but I'll share as much as I feel safe to do so. I want to thank the sponsors of this podcast, Pirelli tires, and I'm going to give away a set of Pirelli tires. Thank you to those who uh, sent emails and questions in. I will be reading those. Uh, I want to thank Blenzall Oils. I want to thank Plum Creek Funding. I want to thank Works Connection. I want to thank Fly Racing. So thank you to all of our great sponsors. Uh, it's been a it's been a wild first year to this industry seating podcast. Um, almost forgot Premier Vapor Blasting of Georgia. I want to thank them as well. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're looking forward to, to growing. Uh, I think, you know, as the racing comes back, this podcast will get much more relevant, but I want to keep it going. And listen, I'm a big podcast listener. So for me, I look forward to the, the podcast that I listen to coming out, you know, every day throughout the week. So I would assume those of you that are loyal listeners are the same way on Sunday and Monday, you're looking forward to it. So I, I totally get it. And, uh, even if there isn't a ton of news, we can do these, these listener questions and giveaways and, uh, yeah, at least give you some entertainment throughout the week. So let's get into some of the changes that went on this week. There hasn't been much, but I did hear that, you know, the, the supercross meetings, the finalization meetings that were supposed to go on did not happen yet. They've, they've been pushed a couple times that has not changed the date, the tentative date, they're still on course for May 31st, as of right now anyway. Now, whether that happens or not, I'm hearing that decision will be made this upcoming Wednesday. And, you know, we've heard several dates thrown out there. Remember that this was supposedly going to happen a week from today on May 17th. That got pushed two weeks to May 31st. And there are a lot of moving pieces in this deal as to why it got moved. Most importantly, the downward trend of reported cases is very significant, and that hasn't happened every single day. Obviously, more people are getting tested every day, so that's it's difficult to keep it in perspective that there's not some huge outbreak, or, or I don't think 
It's just that the when there are that many more people getting tested daily, of course, you're going to have more reported cases to go hand in hand with that. So as a part of these phasing in guidelines, uh, there are obviously parts of that that are relevant to the Glendale part of this series happening. Now, I mentioned last week on this podcast that Houston, Texas was in the running uh, to be the backup site. That is still the case, but I have a feeling that Glendale is uh, the most likely scenario, let's say. And a week ago or so, there was talk that Houston was becoming more likely to happen. But I think that some of the restrictions or, you know, a lot of this comes down to how difficult is it going to be to pull off in that particular state with that stadium, the local government being involved you know, and, and all of those become how likely is this to happen or not happen, right? If you have a hundred boxes that have to be checked to pull it off versus maybe another state has 50 restrictions or boxes that have to be checked, you're going to lean towards the one with 50 because it's going to be easier to make sure that, you know, they all get done. So I'm hearing Glendale is still the most likely landing spot. Uh, I, I don't think Texas or Houston, I should say, is off the table, but I guess if you were betting, you know, 21 days from today, Glendale is still the best bet. Now, for the outdoor series, you know, we, we've seen changes there as well, right? The first change was Hangtown getting moved and then canceled. I shouldn't say moved, just canceled. And then we've had an 11-round schedule still ready to go, but we don't know when those locations will be raced on. July 4th seems to be, and that's the last announcement we've had from uh, MX Sports, seems to be the kickoff date. Now, originally, it was going to be at Redbud. I've heard that may be not the case. Uh, I'm not at liberty to say where it would be moved to, but it sounds like the, the difficulty of having a race in Michigan that early, being July 4th, is a problem. Uh, if you've watched the news at all, you've seen how challenging things are in Michigan. Uh, Their governor has really kept a tight leash on people there. And regardless of politics, I'm not going to go down that avenue. It's just created a complication with Redbud being just inside the Michigan border for that race going off in July. So I'll, I'll leave it there. So look for a different launch location for the, the start of the Lucas Oil Pro Motocross series. The ending of the series is still scheduled for October 3rd, and there would be 11 rounds in between July 4th and October 3rd. Where those are, we're not really there yet. Uh, I would assume that the powers that be have a tentative schedule, but I, I have a feeling it's so fluid and changing so often that they are just reluctant to put anything out that they have to immediately change, and they almost know that's going to change. So we'll just have to be patient. And honestly, we have a a whole Supercross ordeal to go through before that outdoor series runs anyway. Uh, As many of you know, if you followed along to this whole saga, they have limited ticket sales or basically just shut off ticket sales for all of the pro motocross events anyway. And I have a feeling that is so that they can make sure that they don't go over any cap. And if for some reason they had to refund any tickets, it would just be easier, right? People are going to come or they're not going to come. If they turn on ticket sales a few weeks before the race, it's not going to affect attendance, but at least they could limit it if they needed to without having to go through this whole refund 
situation and disappointing a lot of fans. So that's still, you know, changing day to day, how that all is going to play out. Um, but from what I know, the plan still goes on July 4th, just the location of the first round may have changed. And I really haven't gotten any confirmation on any other location for certain dates, but it'll be, if nothing else, it'll be a unique season because, you know, the dates have moved. You know, I remember Mount Morris was always on Memorial Day. Steel City was always Labor Day. Redbud was always 4th of July. Bud's Creek was always Father's Day. Those were kind of the, the staples of the series. And we've seen that change. You know, Bud's Creek has been in August the last few years. Uh, Mount Morris was moved to June, right? Steel City's no longer. Steel City's uh, just, you know, a flat grass field now. So... Even even with that change, we're going to see a series with racing in September, which we haven't we haven't raced you know an outdoor series in in September in a decade maybe. So that'll be fun. It'll be different weather, right? It'll some of these. Uh, let's say we went to Redbud in September. Uh, think about how the motocross of nations was in October, right? And obviously it rained, but I was there on Wednesday before the motocross of nations that year, and it was one of the most beautiful days. I can remember on record. So it has that potential, you know, the, the season's changing in September, October, anywhere in the North. So you talk about races like Millville, Unadilla, Redbud, Washougal, you know, all those races are typically July and August where it's full summer, really warm. And even if it's mild, you know, you get a lot of mild days in upstate New York and in August, but think about something like that in September, you could really have just a completely different landscape with, you know, turning leaves and, and really cool days and, and look much more like an MXGP type weather situation that one, than what we're used to, which is blazing heat and just a normal summer situation. Now it, it brings into question the WW ranch race, which last year we remember how hot that was, you know, it basically ended chase Sexton season for the most part being so hot there that race will probably be later in the season. And as I mentioned, the September cooling off period for the North. Yeah, that's not the case in Florida. September's the same exact thing. I mean, it's, it'll be high nineties and really high humidity and just brutal. So it'll kind of work the other way around. It's only going to be hotter in Florida, whether it's July, August, or September than it would have been in June. Uh, so that, that, that's the one outlier where maybe we could see a negative turn in weather because of the series starting later. But anyway, not a lot of changes on those fronts. I know there are a lot of conversations happening behind the scenes. As I mentioned, it just doesn't always get to uh, a media outlet or, or something that not everyone can report on. Even if we're hearing things, you kind of have to protect the powers that be because they're trying to share information, but they're not sure what's going on. Right? So the last thing they want to do is, is have misinformation reported that's worthless and it's absolutely going to change, right? There, there's really no solidity to it at all. Uh, so we're all trying to be patient with that as we make, you know, business plans and, and myself being a part of fly racing, we obviously sponsor a lot of this, this upcoming racing and how do we respond to it? What are our responsibilities? You know, what are the things that we are offered as, 
in return for being sponsors. All those things are being played out every single day. So a few words about the sponsors, and I appreciate all of you listening to these sponsor reads. Uh, It's a really critical part of these podcasts, and I've been doing the same as I mentioned in previous weeks. I've been trying to listen to all the podcasts that I listen to. Instead of fast-forwarding, I kind of want to learn because that's why people are sponsoring these podcasts. So uh, Pirelli Tires, which we're going to give a set of those away, um, you know, they're, they're like the rest of us. They're in a holding pattern, right? So much of what Pirelli does centers around racing whether it's Formula One or uh, obviously, you know, MXGP and Supercross and Motocross and all aspects of two-wheel and four-wheel racing, they are right in the middle of. So they're kind of, you know, shrugging their shoulders and going about business as usual, but they're getting antsy just like the rest of us. But I certainly want to thank Pirelli Tires for being on board with uh, the Industry Seating Podcast. I want to thank Blenzel Oils. You know, they were very early to join up with the Industry Seating Podcast as well. And they have a few specials going on. So if you enter the promo code SHIP2RACER, you will get free shipping. On top of that, you can actually custom build your own case of oil. And, and that was pretty cool. I thought that was a really good idea by the crew over there to let you customize what you want. Because let's say you wanted a bottle of green label and you wanted four bottles of ultra and two bottles of gold label and on and on, right? Whatever your needs are, two stroke and four stroke, you can customize your order and you can get 10% off of buying a case. So that's still going on. And then finally, if you use the promo code free T when you check out, you will get a free t-shirt and that that's going on for one more week that actually ends on May 16th. So check out everything that blends all oil goes has going on. And uh, yeah, it's it's a company you probably heard of way back, right? You probably don't even know where you heard of it, but they are a staple in the power sports industry going back decades. Uh, so give those guys a look. I want to thank Zach Morris at Plum Creek Funding. Talked to Zach this morning, actually, and I always just kind of want to get an update on what's going on with you know the mortgage and refinance industry, because as we know, that's a really hot topic with coronavirus and the economy. The biggest thing he wanted to share with me, and I kind of already knew this from my own research, and I'm sure that many of you that have mortgages have been offered this and have seen in the news and, and read about it, but it's called forbearance. And if your mortgage company is offering you forbearance, basically what they're saying is, is that you have the right or the ability to not pay your mortgage payment right now, right? You can go, I've seen anywhere from 90 to 180 days of forbearance. Now, what does that mean? That means great. You don't have to pay your mortgage payment right now. But for many of these, and this is actually the case with my mortgage, I looked into it. At the end of 90 days, I am responsible for all three payments and the fourth payment at the same time. So whatever your mortgage payment is, now you have to pay four of those in the fourth month. So that's not really helping anybody, I don't think, right? If you're in a difficult situation, which many people are, right? We, the country lost 30 million jobs in April and you can't afford to pay your mortgage right now, which I, I'm sure that there are people listening to this that are in that situation. How is that going to help you? You're not going to be able to make four mortgage payments in three or four months from now, right? I think this is going to get a little worse before it gets better. So just be very wary of that. Uh, there, there are mortgage companies out there that don't have your best interests in mind. And I know that may come as a shock to many of you, you know, if you've ever been through, uh, 
<laughs> any type of mortgage distress, you know, you're probably laughing because yeah, I've, I've dealt with that myself and mortgage companies are brutal to deal with. Um, but that was really his message is forbearance is a very scary thing and it can really affect your credit negatively down the line when you don't make, you know, four payments at once, which most people can't afford to do. That's what you're signing up for. So be very, very wary of these mortgage companies that are coming at you with this offer, right? Because most likely they're coming at you with an offer that benefits them. It's really not there to help you. And, and I know that from my own experience, because when I saw it pop up on my mortgage website, I was like, Oh, what's this? And I did a ton of research more than most people probably would feel justified doing, but I wanted to know everything about it. And it's, it's not a good deal. Uh, the government has hinted around at making some forbearance guidelines, but they haven't done anything. So it's basically left to the mortgage companies to be their own sheriff. And yeah, you can imagine how that's going. So just, just be careful with that. Again, if you want to reach out to Zach, please do so. He can answer those questions much more in depth than I can. Um, but really more than anything, I just want to look out for the moto community on that end. I want to thank works connection also. Uh, Eric has been really great through this whole thing. And honestly, you know, I don't, I can't speak for his particular business, but more people are riding than ever. And as bad as we kind of all thought this, this would be like this coronavirus would be, cause you know, these companies, myself included in my own racing life and business, the 2008, 2009 great recession was just horrific, right? It was devastating to, the motocross and power sports community as a whole. And for my own income racing, it was brutal. I mean, it, it was over half of my income was just gone, right? Just completely wiped out and gone. So far talking to smaller companies, uh, you know, for what I know from Western power sports and fly racing and many companies, it, it maybe is not exactly where it was, you know, maybe there has been some sort of decline, but it hasn't been monumental. And, and let's just say yet, right? We don't know where this is going to go, but I have been pleasantly surprised. And I, th I think in big part that is due to people being loyal, people buying local, right? You're going to small business to fix up your motorcycle, to buy oil for your motorcycle, to put new frame guards or a, you know, a clutch assembly on your motorcycle, right? All those things can be bought from companies like Works Connection. And that's a really important factor we need to keep in mind is that, you know, we, we all have to look out for each other in this motocross community. And if you have money to spend, if you are going to fix your motorcycle up, buy from those people, which are still investing in the sport and have been around for, you know, more than a hot minute. I also want to thank premier vapor blasting and, and you know, they're a pretty new business, but they do a great job. I, and I have every weekend I've encouraged all of you to check out their Instagram at premier vapor blasting. They are doing some great work over there restoration wise. And, uh, yeah, just can't be more proud of the things that I see them post and the quality of their work. Finally, fly racing, as you know, I work there and, um, yeah, it's weird times. I've been in and out of the office, had to do a bunch of, uh, product videos last week. So it felt a little bit normal. But uh, we, we have been overwhelmed with the support of our local dealers and just the innovation we've seen and how to sell and how we can all help each other to continue business. And one of the most, one of the things I should say that I'm most proud of with Western Power Sports and Fly Racing is our dedication to help 
local dealers find solutions. And every step of the way, ever since I've been there, and it's going on eight years, we prove day in and day out that we are willing to bend over backwards to make things work. And we are doing that more than ever in this coronavirus uh, pandemic economy. And it's, it's paying off, right? We, we are finding new customers and we're, we're creating new business in new ways than I've ever seen before. So I'm very thankful for that. And I'm very proud to be a part of that. So anyway, thank you for listening to the sponsors and and thank you to those sponsors, but let's get into some of these questions and I'm going to pick one of these. And I honestly have not picked yet because I haven't read them, but I'm going to pick one of these for a free set of tires. Now, Kalen asks, what's the percentage that Bradshaw's riding in Moto Fight Club turns the race into an actual fight club? And also, who's your pick to win? You know what? I, I think it's a really cool idea. I was really skeptical at first because I, I thought they were going to be on pit bikes. That was the rumor at first. But once I heard they were on 450s or big bikes, I was all in at that point. Bradshaw will have a hard time, I think, keeping his temper under control. Listen, he's super cool and he's a great ambassador for fly racing. And it kind of blew me away how down to earth he is person to person. But when he puts his helmet on, that guy loses his effing mind. So yeah, there's no telling what happens if somebody T-bones him or whatever. I'm just telling you, he goes from zero to a hundred really quickly. As for my pick to win, I think I would have to go with one of the younger guys, the guys that are closer to the time they've spent racing, you know, someone like Villapoto or Alessi or somebody like that, because they're just so much closer to their prime and they ride a lot more, you know, Alessi's, he's been training to go racing, right? He's been training to race two stroke world championships and all these things. So he's going to be coming in hot and he's pretty good at racing one-on-one. Um, so if, I guess if I had to pick a winner, I'll go with Alessi, but more than anything, I, I hope that it's just entertaining and comes off well, because we all know that we need some, uh, some racing entertainment and it's a really good opportunity to raise money for road to recovery. And yeah, I just wish the best for them. I know that Damon Bradshaw is arriving into the secret location tonight. Uh, they have a round table video deal tomorrow night, which would be Monday night. Um, so yeah, this thing's, uh, it's right around the corner. So cool deal. Now, Craig asks, do you think the amount of privateers racing will go up or down when, and if racing returns, surely some of these guys have suffered financial difficulty. I'm just wondering if it will have an effect on how many of them are able to show up once we go back to racing a couple things there. For one, I'm hearing that they're going to limit it to 40 riders in each class. Okay. So that for one, and and that's super cross I'm talking about, that's going to limit right off the top, how many people are signing up. you know, the most I saw in 2020 was around 60, I believe in, in one class, the 450 licenses are really difficult to attain these days. So that number of privateers signing up has come down just because they're, they're trying to make it more difficult to get a 450 license. But for your overall question, you know, and this would be more relevant for Lucas Oil Pro Motocross, you know, I think they'll be out there. I, I don't think it's going to have too much of a negative effect because let's be honest, there wasn't a ton of money available to these guys anyway. You know, if you're a privateer motocross guy, racing supercross and, and motocross wasn't, you weren't getting rich off of it anyway. 
you're probably making more money racing local fair races and things like that throughout the summer and, and finding extra ways to make income. You're probably just getting by racing supercross and motocross. And that's just the harsh reality of our sport. It, it's never really been a whole lot different than that. You know, I can go back to 2005 and say, yes, it was better than it is now. And that's not necessarily due to the Feld payout for Supercross because that's gone up significantly. They pay much more money now for Supercross purse money than they did back then. And that, that should be very clear and upfront. The problem is, is that OEM contingency, you know, from all the manufacturers has gone down significantly from those days. And that's just, they sell less bikes, right? There's less money to dole out. Also, um, whether it's gear sponsors or goggles, oils, you know, all of the industry sponsors, they never really came back to the levels of their spending from that time, right? So they went through this great boom, right? 04, 05, 06, 07, there's money everywhere. People are doing great. People are not scared to spend money. And then 08, 09, 10, 11, 12, it's the bottom falls out and people are just trying to stay in business. They're trying to just stay in their house and pay their bills, right? It's, it's a really difficult time for America and leisure spending, which motocross and supercross falls into really felt the brunt of that. And I lived through it. I was racing and I know, like, as I mentioned 20 minutes ago, my income just, it took a huge hit. It was brutal for me. And I had to sell, you know, most of the things I owned and just really cut down on all my expenses. But we never really bounced all the way back. It has come back some, I have to be transparent on that. It, it has come back some, and I know a lot of brands are spending again, but the privateers have not really benefited from that. There was a, basically a list of sponsors. Every time you signed up for, for a, a motocross or supercross, you went through technical inspection and you checked off a box if you were sponsored by or you used said product, right? And it, and it could be a tire, it could be clutch plates, it could be oil, it could be gear. All those brands were series sponsors is what they were called. And they provided contingency for racing. It was a really cool program and it, it still happens now. Point being, it is much smaller and has contracted significantly from those days. And it really never came all the way back, right? So... I would get checks in the mail from companies like Wiseco and Fly Racing and all these brands that they didn't pay me a salary at the time, or some did, but they didn't necessarily pay me a salary at the time, but they had contingency that I qualified for and I could win money from. Well, and that's, that's really what hurts the privateers is those companies not being able to really float that, at least in those days anyway, right? It just never kind of came back. And I think that's from brands being scared of the next recession, right? And maybe we're waltzing into that right now, right? And, and if they've done that and they've saved money in the interim, then good for them. But I know it's been hard on privateers. But I guess to circle back to finally answer your question, I don't think it's going to change a whole lot. I think the guys that are, were able to go race in March, you know, if they're, I don't think racing in June or July uh, I don't think the world has changed all that much, much for them in just a couple months. Good question though. Uh, we're, we're all going to see, uh, that's just my guess. Colin asks with Suzuki and turmoil, how would you fix the brand if you were in charge? That's an interesting question. And I've been to Japan 
twice since 2017. Both times were for Suzuki intros. So the first one was for the 2018 450, and then I went back in 2018 for the 2019 250. And, you know, they've mixed reviews on how those bikes were received, right? But it was they were the biggest changes that they had seen in several years, and they really wanted to get the media to come over to Japan and learn and ride the bike and, and kind of see where the direction was going. You know, Ricky Carmichael was there, Suzuki engineers were there, and they did a fantastic job of taking care of us, especially the first year. The first year was just over the top with the new 450. The second year was a smaller crew, a more condensed schedule, but still just, you know, a great job by all, all that were involved in that process. I want to sh- uh, give a shout out to Chris Wheeler there as well for, for taking care of us. But as far as how to fix Suzuki, you know, my, my idea, I don't think would be very well received by Suzuki brass and, and I'll lay it out for you here and I'll tell you why they wouldn't like it. Now, if you look at the state of the sport as a whole, right? Most people's biggest complaint is that bikes are too expensive. I think that's pretty common and, and pretty easy to diagnose. You hear that more often than not, right? It's like, I can't afford to do this anymore. I can't afford to get my kid into racing because it's too expensive. The bike's I can't afford a $10,000 bike. I can't afford, if it blows up, I can't afford $2,000 to fix it. Whereas a two stroke was five or 6,000 new and maybe three or 400 bucks to fix it if it blew up, right? Those are much different dynamics as far as affordability. Now, Suzuki has an opportunity and this is where you would have to swallow some pride but if I'm Suzuki and your only goal is to sell units, and that, that's where it really gets difficult because I don't think Suzuki views themselves as a second-tier brand, nor should they. You look at how many titles those guys have won and their proud history, they're not a second-tier brand. But they've put themselves in a very precarious spot where they're not selling bikes, they haven't kept up on the technical side, innovating making the bike lighter, electric start, you know, updating the frame. They haven't, they have not kept up with the Joneses, let's say in that aspect, right? If you look at where KTM and Husky and Honda and these other, you know, Cowie, Yamaha, they're all just, you know, full throttle. And I hate that saying, but they're really aggressive right now, as far as updating their bikes and taking that stuff to the next level. Suzuki's just not. and, And I think that's fair to say. So what I think they could do was, would be to take their bikes, take their current 450 and 250, find ways to cut costs, their production cost, and offer, let's say, a somewhere between five and $6,000 brand new four-stroke, okay? And I'm not even going down the two-stroke path. I know that's the most common ask. Is like, let's build new two-strokes. That's fine. That's the easy one. Yes, I'm all for that. I would love for those brands to bring back brand new two strokes and sell them for five grand. I'm, uh, let's just start there and, and move past that quickly because that's everybody's ask. Okay. This is a little bit more out of the box and I, I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I think there's a, a window there for them to find a, a niche as far as who to sell to. And if they could get those costs down, engineering costs, cut corners, maybe not, not necessarily on equipment, but on advertising or some aspect to get some cost out of their motorcycles, even if, so basically what I'm saying, they'd have to be willing to accept a lower margin on producing their bikes. 
So they have to cut costs somewhere else. But if they could build a bike for five or six grand, I think they could reach a customer that has basically been neglected by the off-road market. You know, that customer that is unwilling or unable to go spend $10,000. If you offer them a great motorcycle, which I don't care what you think, the new Suzuki's are great motorcycles. Are they the best motorcycles on the market? Yeah. Okay. I can see your point. You know, I think that the other brands have passed them by, so to speak, as far as technology. And, and that's not breaking news, but those, those 2020 Suzuki's are great motorcycles period, right? If you gave me a, you know, a 2020 Suzuki 450 five or eight years ago, I would have been like, damn, this thing's amazing. And it is, it, it absolutely is. It is, it far surpasses the ability of 99% of humans to ride. That's just a fact, right? Most people cannot even come close to maximizing their performance of a 250F or a 450, especially. So find ways to get your cost down to where you can offer a $6,000 450. And I think you could capture a brand new segment of the market that you would corner. Okay. So that's one idea that I had. The other idea I have is you just have to go all in, right? The Suzuki brass is going to have to redesignate funds because from the people I talk to, their Marine and their automobile side, which are, you know, the, especially the auto side is huge in the South Pacific countries like Indonesia, Thailand, uh, all across the South Pacific. They are printing money. They just record sales, profitability, all that. So there is money there. One of the Suzuki brass at the top is going to have to make a fundamental decision to take those funds and redirect them to the motorcycle side you know, motocross specifically, that could be a very poor financial decision. And I'm assuming they don't see any chance of ROI, you know, return on investment for that spend. And that's probably why they haven't done it. You know, they just look at the market and it's pretty stagnant right now. Sales are down on units. So they're probably like, yeah, that's a bad bet. Why would we do that? But I believe it's going to take someone in the Suzuki hierarchy that is very proud. And I I just believe that it's going to have to come from a place of pride versus financial viability that from knowing what I know about the state of the sport and financial aspects of it, that's the only way it will happen for Suzuki is just, they look at it and go, you know what? We're better than this. We have the money as a, a global brand for Suzuki motors, right? Just forget about dirt bikes, but we have the money from the auto side, go take some money and go fix this and go build the best motorcycle on the planet, right? That's what it will come down to more than accountants looking at, you know, (laughs) profit and loss at the end of the year and projections, because that's never going to win. They're never going to win that argument if it comes down to that. But I think if they get frustrated enough to be willing to spend what it takes, they can do it. Now I'm not betting on that. I don't think that happens. I think the plan of creating a four stroke that was more cost affordable and cornering a piece of the market would be a better business plan. The problem with that is I don't think that Suzuki would be willing to swallow coming out with what people would classify as a second rate 450 or second rate 250. That's where I think the trouble runs into. You would have to be willing to swallow all of that pride and say, you know what? That's fine. You guys go build what you you spend all this money on and innovating your four fifties that 
you're not selling out of, right? Sales are very, are, aren't great on. We're going to go build something that people can actually afford and we're going to sell a ton of them. So long, long answer to that, but that's kind of how I view it. And if I was in charge, which I am wildly unqualified to be, that's where I would start. So Bob, it's a long email. I should have prefaced this. Um, but he's kind of thanking me for the podcast, which is awesome. Uh, I'm, as you know, I'm learning how to do these podcasts as we go and, and I do them because I enjoy them above all else. But yeah, no problem, Bob. I, like I said, I'm having fun with this too. So he's in upstate New York and nothing is open to ride. Um, he, it sounds like he does a lot of driving for, um, for his job. So hang in there. I know New York's in a really tough spot. It's the hardest hit state in the union as far as this coronavirus goes. So hang in there. So he's raced cars most of his life and he's got a lot of questions here. I'm going to kind of paraphrase, but the first one is, so he races cars and he is asking about Pirelli's and he's talking about sidewalls, right? So in his cars, the sidewall would change week to week and that would really affect how he had to set his car up. And he's asking about motocross tires and supercross if sidewall affects settings or how the bike responds to different conditions, etc. Now we're talking about two different things here. So a standard tire that I will be giving away during this podcast and also uh, ones that you could go buy from your local dealer. Um, they are, you know, and that's a big thing for Pirelli. They sell what they race on, right? So going back to my racing days, that wasn't the case. Uh, what, and, and it's for most brands, it's not the tires that, you know, let's say Ken Roxon is racing on versus what you buy at the dealer. Not the same thing. Softer compounds, stiffer sidewalls. Sometimes they lower or raise the knob height to give better traction. Uh, or, you know, if it's really hard packed, they'll lower the knob height to let the tire flatten out some. So there's a lot going on there now on a, so I'm going to, I'm going to cover both on a works tire. The sidewalls are going to be stiffer and especially in supercross. And why that is, if you have a big hard landing, like say you over jump a triple or a rhythm section, any hard landing, that's going to be much more likely in supercross. I've ridden with production tires in a supercross setting. And what happens is the sidewall flexes and whatever side you're leaning to, or whatever the most pressure is on, it will roll that direction. And it basically just pulls you to that direction. And it's really scary and really not fun because you swerve. As soon as you land, the, the sidewall rolls, the tire immediately jerks that way and it's almost uncontrollable. So yes, works tires are generally have stiffer sidewalls to prevent that from happening. And it's a very noticeable difference. He's asking also about air pressure and he, you know, he's saying he notices air pressure significantly on a motocross bike and, and kind of relating that to sidewalls. Yeah, definitely air pressure. It's one thing I was very sensitive with and air pressure is a very, very noticeable difference on a motocross bike, which kind of you already said. Now he goes into another question about suspension changes with, with rocks and earlier in the season, and he's asking, you know, rocks was saying his bike was too stiff. And we remember, I think, you know, Tomac wasn't as vocal about why, but Roxon definitely was his Anaheim one setting was too stiff. The track was really soft and, and deteriorated heavily and got really rough and, and his stiff setting didn't allow for him to ride comfortably. Now he was also being protective of himself because if you go back to his big crash and injury in 2017, 
a lot of people speculate I'm one of those and, and he really hasn't come out and said it, but it's pretty fairly known that he believes a big reason for that crash was his setting was too soft. He got really low into the stroke in that step off section. And then it rebounded too fast and sent him into an endo and crashed. Now that's a fairly common concept for supercross. If you're, if your shock's too soft, you get into a very compressed situation. It only has one way to go and that's up, right? And, and if it rebounds too violently, you're, and you don't expect it, you're going over the bars. So to combat that, Kenny went super stiff on his bike so that he would fight against that deep compression and he would be able to handle big uh, G out situations, which put him into a bad spot in 2017. The tough part of that is the bike doesn't handle well at all. It gets super rigid and all of the all those bumps and holes and all that stuff, instead of the, the suspension soaking it up and absorbing it, it transfers that into your body because the bike is so stiff and rigid, making it really difficult to ride. Uh, so that's kind of in a nutshell. Now, the question here was about, is that stiffness due to spring rate or is it due to valving? And it could be both. Uh, if you've followed along with the Chad Reed saga, you'll know that he's huge on suspension changes. The funny part is that he always went for internal changes and much to the dismay of guys like Oscar Weirdeman and whoever his suspension tech ha happened to be at the time. He always wanted to make big sweeping internal changes instead of using the clickers. He didn't feel like those changes were enough, right? He wanted to make significant changes if he was going to make a change and the problem is there's a ton of work that goes, you know, it's involved in, in taking the forks apart. If you're going to make big changes, not, you know, not just springs, if you're going to actually change shims and do all that, it's a lot of work. And I think it drove his suspension guys crazy and still does to this day. So to answer your question, whether it was spring or valving, I don't know. That would be a technical question that I doubt HRC would be willing to share. Um, you know, obviously a lot of that is due to, to tech and, and they don't, they're not really forthcoming with big setting changes. So the answer is it could have been either or, or both. It could be both, right? You could be, you could be searching because it's not always a direct correlation. You know, a lot of, a lot of times you'll come in and say it's, you know, the bike is doing this or that. And then it's between you and the technician and the team to brainstorm and come up with which, you know, what, what is causing that feeling, right? And you, that's where you need really smart technicians that are able to listen and dissect your feedback and then apply it to find the right solution. That's, that's really where the rubber meets the road as far as great techs. And then guys that are just kind of eh, whatever, right? They, they know how to take suspension apart and put it back together but they can't work with a rider and watch the motorcycle themselves and say, yep, I watched it. It's doing X and I need to do Y to, to fix it and, and find the feeling that the rider is looking for. So good question. And then one more from Bob, he says, what is the most satisfying part of your job? Is it the one-on-one -on -one engagement in the dealer or is it dealing with customers, et cetera? You know, and honestly, for me, the most satisfying part is watching the brand grow. You know, I wore it for a long time, you know, starting at the end of O2 and yeah, I was with a competitor that wasn't my decision for a couple of years, but for the most, you know, the better part of, you know, 19 years going on, I've been affiliated with the brand somehow or another. And in every bit of 15 years total, I've been 
directly involved, whether feedback or, you know, an ambassador or a sponsored rider or some aspect of it, or, you know, helping manage the brand that's been the last almost eight years. So to see where we came from back then to where we are now, and in the last few years, the growth and improvement, both product wise and perception from our, you know, our loyal customers and the reception from our dealers. And honestly, many of the things that I I can't talk about, right? The products that we have coming up and the things that the design team has come up with and all the approval processes that we've done for 2021, that'll be here in a couple of months. And then even 2022, I know where this brand is headed and I know how bright the future is. That's what I'm most proud of is the growth and the hard work and the belief that everybody has had to get us truly where we're going to go. And, and I really do believe that in a few years, regardless of what your perception is, that you're, we're going to be viewed as the preeminent motocross apparel brand in the world. And I, I firmly believe that. And we have some really stiff competition. You know, listen, the, the brands we face or I face, you know, on a daily basis as far as competitor I respect them a lot, right? They have great heritage and great products and and they do some things incredibly well, but I'm also very confident in what we can offer customers and the things that we can do for our dealers. And I believe in, in what's coming. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's what I'm most proud of is, is all the hard work that's gone into getting this brand on the right track and down the road that we're, we're currently headed. So good questions there. Uh, Doug asks, what do I see as far as teams downsizing for the 21 season due to this whole coronavirus situation. Uh, will JGR go with Honda and how many riders 250450? Where does Dylan Ferrandis go? Uh, KTM rumblings, please get stay on blue crew. Sorry. I uh, couldn't really read that, but I'm, I'm saying, will I think he's asking, will Barsha stay on blue crew? So several things to unpack there. How many teams do I see downsizing? I don't think it's going to change a whole lot. The biggest thing is how quickly can the country rebound and how, how, you know, punishing is this coronavirus financially for industry sponsors? Because that's really what drives these teams. You know, if the energy drink companies and the industry sponsors don't take a huge hit and they can honor their agreements and re-sign deals, then yeah, I think you'll see the same amount of teams that we have within reason, right? It won't be this huge contraction, but if this lingers on, if there's some huge flare up and, and companies are really in bad shape, then maybe you will, right? And that's going to be some, some difficult times for a lot of teams to face, but maybe those teams can take this opportunity to, you know, get very efficient and get into fighting shape for the years to come. And that's a great message that I listened to this podcast called pivot and it's financially based. It's on stock market and, and tech and business. And it's very difficult for me to listen to. Sometimes the, the woman Kara Swisher on there is, I just disagree with her politics and, and her views on things very strongly uh, at times, but I have to just kind of swallow it and move on. But the other gentleman that's on there is Scott Galloway. And even for him, he's an NYU professor, and I really disagree with some of his stances at times. We're very politically different. Both of them and I are very politically different, uh, but they are incredibly intelligent people, 
And business-wise, they they have some great insight. And I do learn every single time that I listen to the show. I just have to kind of shake my head and, and yell at my my phone about the podcast when they kind of go off on these political rants. But take the good with the bad and try to learn when there are very intelligent people sharing information. Now, one of Scott Galloway's messages has been this coronavirus is teaching a lesson about, and he, he always puts it where I got it. He always puts it, get putting yourself into fighting shape, right? Get efficient, cut all the fat, trim all the unnecessary expense and spending that, you know, in the last decade of prosperity that we've been through, that's, it was okay, right? It was like no big deal. We could afford to spend if you're a company, right? It was just an, uh, an expense that maybe wasn't necessary, but you were okay with doing it because yeah, money was rolling in and so what? Well, now you can take a hard look at everything and really, really figure your business out, right? You can really learn your numbers and say, is that really necessary to do? Or could we maintain the same level of business, become more efficient, more profitable without wasteless spending. So I think that's something that teams will be forced to do, bringing it all back to, uh, to motocross. They're going to have to look at all that stuff, right? Is do we, do we necessarily have to have, you know, seven technicians to sort the bike out or could we do this the same level? You know, could we have the same level of performance with less crew? And, and that's another lesson I learned from, you know, Chad Reed's tutu motorsports project was Chad always wanted to be on the same playing field as the factories. So he spent and spent and spent. He was high, he would hire a chassis guy and a test bike guy and a separate engine guy. And he had two mechanics and he had a crew chief. I mean, it was just unbelievable. The staff he had, and it was a crazy good race team. I mean, you want to talk about having every possible scenario covered. They had it and they had very smart people. I mean, you know, talk about Oscar and Mike Gossler and Lars and, uh, Shane drew and Dave Osterman. And you just go down the line of people they had on the team and they were all well-respected cream of the crop level guys. And that's why Chad hired them and he paid them well. And he's, he spent incredible amounts of money to put this team together. But when I look back on it and I'll be honest at the time, I thought the same thing. But certainly now when I look back on it and now that, you know, that project wasn't able to sustain itself, he, I, I truly believe he could have gotten the same results with half of the amount of people, you know, it would, it would have been more work. I get it for certain people. Right. But when you have one rider, do you necessarily need a, a test coordinator and a separate engine guy and a separate chassis guy and a separate suspension guy and a, two mechanics like that seems like a lot of overlap for one rider. That that's my take on it, right? And again, I'm not the end all be all. It's one man's opinion. But I think that's the lesson that a lot of these teams are going to have to learn for themselves and really take hard looks at their spending and and find ways to steal Scott Galloway's take to get themselves into fighting shape. So, it's kind of where I see that going. Will JGR go with Honda? I don't know. I, I, that, I haven't heard anything about them going with Honda. That's news to me. Uh, I think maybe something like gas gas would be more likely because they're going to look, I'm assuming gas gas will expand into America. That's another assumption I'm making, but something like JGR or something like the Rocky mountain ATVMC KTM team, 
that would be another possible landing spot for gas gas because remember it's obviously a ktm acquirement um so yeah i i would say that gas gas would be more likely than honda but again i'm, I'm guessing i don't have any evidence of that where does dylan ferrandis go from what i hear it's either going to be ktm or yamaha it sounds like both of those two oems are after him and I haven't heard much since this whole coronavirus thing hit and we stopped racing, but it was a, a pretty hot topic, you know, going back to March. So I'm assuming things are happening behind the scenes. And for all we know, he could have signed a deal already. They just aren't going to, you know, release anything with a, he's in the middle of a supercross, supercross championship run and obviously has the whole outdoor series to race yet for Yamaha. So again, these deals get signed around now. You know, this, this May month is, is big for signings because Supercross ends. So it would not surprise me at all to hear that he signed his contract already uh, and, and that would just be waiting in the wings one way or another. That doesn't mean he has. I haven't heard that being completely transparent, but it would not shock me. But between those two teams, I think you'll, you'll find your answer. Now, Justin Cooper's in that mix too. I've heard both Yamaha and KTM were wooing him for a multi-year deal that would see him on the 250 next year and then up to the 450 for two years following that. So I would assume that if Ferrandis goes to one, then Cooper goes to the other or vice versa. So just keep an eye on that. But I, I, I kind of see Ferrandis and Cooper filling two KTM Yamaha spots, you know, for the next two or three years minimum. So good question there. Does Blue Crew keep Barsha? I don't know. That's interesting. I do think Barsha is riding well enough that somebody's going to keep him. Now, I know he wants a raise, and honestly, he probably deserves one. You know, he's in fourth in points, but very close to third. Or I haven't even looked at the points in forever, but I know he and Cooper Webb are very close in points for third and fourth. Barsha won, Anaheim won two years in a row. So, by my book, he deserves a raise. I know he wasn't thrilled with the amount of money on his last Yamaha deal, but again, he didn't have any leverage and leverage is everything when negotiating a contract. So I hope Barsha gets paid. I think he deserves to get paid. He's really turned his career around, but he's also up against Yamaha. Who's looking to the future. And let's, let's think about how long Barsha has been around. You know, he, he turned pro, I think in Oh nine. So, you know, he's going on 11 or 12 years at the at factory level between 250 and 450. So is Yamaha willing to invest big dollars in, you know, a known commodity that may, may only have a few years left. And even Barsha himself has mentioned that he would like to go to Europe before this whole thing's over. So I think Barsha's looking at all of his options, but I do know from his own mouth that he, he feels like he deserves a raise. And, and frankly, I agree with him. So we'll see. But with Plessinger riding better, Ferrandis in the mix and Justin Cooper in the mix, uh, they're running out of spots quickly. So good question there, though. Now, Tim asks, just wondering if I have a top three list of things I've seen a fellow racer do that were so incredible. It made you just want to put your bike on the stand for good. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I was very fortunate in all these stories that I've been telling over the last few weeks, you guys have gotten to hear some of them, you know, things, everything from Chad Reed to Mark Marquez to Valentino Rossi to Sebastian Tortelli, Tim Ferry on and on. I've just been blessed. You know, Ricky Carmichael, I spent a ton of time riding with Ricky in our younger days and all of them did mind blowing things. Uh, I would say some of the things I've seen James Stewart do 
and I didn't really practice with Stu. Only a couple times ever did I practice with him, but I didn't really see anything in those times. More stuff that I saw James do at the races, I was just like, yeah, I'll, I'll never be able to do anything approaching that, right? Like when he invented the scrub and all that kind of stuff. I had a picture on my locker and my mechanic <laughs> thought it was funny. It was funny. He posted a picture on my locker and this is in 2005 of James Stewart at Orlando passing me. And this was, I think on Friday practice, but he was a good five feet. I'm going to say underneath me. And I was jumping the triple and he was jumping the triple at the same time. And he was probably five feet underneath me. And, and obviously, you know, made some wise crack on the picture, but it was like, yeah, I, I don't even know how he did that. And that was, you know, back when scrubbing was not really commonplace, right? It was, there were only a few people that could really scrub going back to 05. And it was just like, what am I even doing compared to that guy? I, I have no business on this track compared to how fast that guy can go. Uh, another time would have been Sebastian Tortelli's first day back from shoulder surgery. And he had his uh, labrum fixed. What year was that? That would have been going into the, it was summer of 02. I had just come back from, and I was racing. So I would, I just come back from my wrist surgery, but I was back up to speed. So I wasn't, I was probably getting, I don't know, 15th in the outdoors. I wasn't definitely wasn't my best, but I was okay. Right. Respectable. And Sebastian was coming off of labrum surgery and it was, his, I'm not kidding. It was first day back from riding and he was faster than me on his track. And, and yes, it is his track at his house, but still that's brutally embarrassing. You know, I'm, I'm getting ready to go race for the weekend. He's like, okay, I'm going to go test out my shoulder. I haven't ridden in five months and I'm going to get on my bike and I'm going to go ride for the first time. And for real, like he passed me. And I was just like, you know what? Forget this. You know, it was, we're both on two strokes. So it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't unfair or anything like that. He was just so, so talented that, yeah, he was just, he kind of followed me around, like found my speed. And then was just like, yeah, I can go faster than this. His first day. So you can imagine that was difficult to swallow knowing you have to go race, you know, the best riders in the world that upcoming week. And you just get your, your confidence completely demolished by this guy. Who's just trying to figure out if he's even ready to ride yet because his shoulder is still, still healing. And he just blows by you. But uh, anyway, Mark asks, what happens to the factory parts, say from Honda, you know, when they, do they sit on a bench until they're outdated during a situation like this? What happens to all those parts, frames, engines, etc. once they're done with them? Uh, he's asking from New Zealand and he also wanted to ask about my race with the King brothers where I landed on them. So cover both of these. So what happens to factory parts is a lot of them will stay in the race shop. So if you went to factory Honda, you could probably find some old parts from back then, right? They don't necessarily get rid of everything, but a lot of the, the bikes, you know, especially practice bikes and stuff like that, they crush them. And even like the media bikes and advertising bikes that, you know, like Suzuki allowed me to use in, uh, 2018, 2019, they gave me a 450 to use. They destroy those bikes and yeah, they're, they're a write-off on their taxes. So they are, they have to sign off them and they have to crush them. So they're not shown as, as a revenue generator. They didn't sell them. Uh, so yeah, when I sent my 450 back, they crush it and off they go. So a lot of those practice bikes and stuff from the, the teams, like a factory rider, like let's say Ken Roxon's practice bike. Yeah. At the end of the day, 
they would crush it so they can get that tax write off. And it's pretty sad to think about just, you know, perfectly good bikes are destroyed, but it's just part of the game. Now, as far as New Zealand, I went down there and I probably should have told a story about this, but I don't remember all the details. It's been so long, but I went to New Zealand to do a couple of races at the end of 2000. It was, and it was myself, Kelly Smith, Andy Harrington, and Keith Johnson from New Mexico. We went down and we, the, basically the offer was all expenses paid. The tourism department of New Zealand was funding it, right? So we didn't have to pay for anything. And when you get the tourism bureau for New Zealand paying for it, yeah, they roll out the red carpet, right? It was more of a goodwill measure by them to, Hey, let's spread the word. We're going to get television coverage and magazine articles and all these things to attract more Americans to come visit. And if you've followed along with like the New Zealand and Australian supercross lately, where Jason Anderson and Chad Reed and all these athletes were down there doing like the dog shows with sheep and all that stuff. That's exactly the same thing as what was going on for us. The tourism departments are subsidizing those events and paying these huge show up fees. But in return for that, you have to go to these shows and do some PR work for them, which we did the same thing. So that was the deal. No, there was no money, which eh, whatever it is what it is, but to get to spend three weeks in New Zealand, all expenses paid. And we got to do everything because the tourism department was, you know, that was why we were there is for, to get these video clips and all these things. So we went bungee jumping, we rode in jet boats, we did deep, we went deep sea fishing, uh, just anything and everything you can think of white water rafting, you know, all the cool stuff that a country has to offer tourism wise, we did it. So great times. Uh, it was actually my first trip overseas, uh, racing for the Husky team. So yeah, I borrowed a couple of Husqvarna's in New Zealand and raced down there. We were trying to sort out the bikes more than anything. I spent a bunch of time during the week just testing uh, with my mechanic. His name was Ross. He's actually from New Zealand, which was uh, ironic. But we spent a lot of time just practicing, and it was the arena was open to us to ride at certain times. So I would just go ride and like mess with settings and whatever, trying to get used to this Husqvarna in hopes for a good 2001 season, which we kind of all know where that went. But at the last weekend, right, uh, we're racing and, and we're all kind of ready to go home by this point. Uh, I think we flew out a day or two after this final race. But I remember, you know, Shane and Daryl King, for those of you who don't know, they are legendary Kiwi motocross stars. Plain and simple. So we got to hang out with them some, right? I didn't know them all that well. And, and for those of you who know Shane King, he's he's hilarious. You know, he's always up for a good time and having a drink and whatever. And this race was all about fun. And of course they're a huge draw for that whole crowd to, to get people from New Zealand to come to these supercross races. Yeah. You have your hometown heroes coming out. And at the same time, Shane King and Daryl King were not supercross riders. You know, Daryl King raced the 2000 supercross season and, and I got to know him throughout that season. But remember these guys were not supercross specialist by any stretch of the imagination, nor do they pretend to be when this final race, they went one, two. I remember that. And it was a really tame supercross track. It was like a arena cross, you know, jump, super easy jumps or whatever. So they were, they were really fast. And I think I got third or fourth, but either way, I remember the finish line was on this triple, right? And, and I didn't know that they were doing this, but apparently they were told at the end of the race, 
and I, I think it was even kind of set up, but you guys need to win. You know, that happens at a lot of these exhibition races. They stopped and were shaking hands and like high fiving and waving at the crowd on the landing of a triple jump as part of the finish line. Right. And I didn't know this was happening or if I was told, I certainly didn't remember in the heat of the moment. So I come over in the checkered flag and I hit the jump and I'm in the air and it's almost like <laughs> motocross of nations in Italy where Anderson gets landed on. I'm in the air and it's just like a free fall. And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to kill New Zealand's motocross heroes because I was going, I landed right on top of them. I mean, I, I totally my fault, I guess, but I had no idea they were going to be stopped on the landing. Just no clue that that was ever possible. Right. It, it seems in hindsight, looks such a bad idea, but yeah, these, these things happen. It was a, it was a mistake. It was an accident. You know, I, luckily they weren't hurt or seriously hurt anyway. I think Daryl King, his leg was definitely hurting him and he was certainly hurling some insults my way, which I probably deserved. Um, I think Shane was okay, but yeah, it was an, it was an ugly deal and pretty bummed. You know, I, I hated that I did that or landed on him, but at the same time, I would never recommend anyone stopping on the landing of a jump after the finish. It's a really, really bad idea because yeah, you're on a racetrack and, and I was battling with a guy behind me and I wasn't even paying attention to what was going on. I was more worried about protecting my position because there were racers from Australia and New Zealand and all over. And there, there was purse money up for grabs. So, um, yeah, just completely oblivious to this fact until I was in the air and then it was just like full panic and, and I could not believe what was about to happen. So pretty crappy deal. I'm glad they weren't hurt bad. I still feel bad to this day and I, and I'll see Shane King every once in a while. And you know, it, these international races like a one or motocross the nations and always a good time with those guys. They are jokesters. If you know them at all, you know how, uh, how much fun they are to hang out with. So scary deal. Glad it didn't turn out to be worse. Uh, so Mick asks, we hear a lot about pros practicing different areas, corners, jumps, yada, yada. Do they after do they ever practice red cross situations or stop in a corner to simulate a crash or break the rhythm and then practice finding that rhythm again? I have never really heard of that happening. Uh, it's so rare that you deal with a red cross as far as where it really screws your race up. Um, but you know, it, I guess it happens enough to where you kind of know what to do and really just roll the jumps. And it's actually, it's scary that somebody's hurt. But at the same time, what I would always try to do is just to get my heart rate back under control and really breathe because you can't do the jumps. You have to roll. So I would always try to take some huge breaths and get my heart rate down and get some oxygen, you know, into my brain and into my muscles during that time. But I've never seen a rider practice it or simulate it, uh, during the week. Um, it's just, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's a good idea, but I've never really seen it. Uh, good question though, Mick. Appreciate it. And what's next? So Mike asks, uh, I raced the 2008 Montreal Supercross. That was me too. I was there. I heard that JSR was given the count for the gate drop and I heard other ridiculous rumors that it was fixed. I personally don't believe top racers would let him win. Not trying to tarnish anyone's reputation, but was just curious your take seeing you were there. Now I was there and I got third, second or third. I can't remember if I caught uh, up to second or not, but I know I got on the podium and I, I feel like I should have won. I, I really do believe I was the best rider that night. 
Um, but yes, JSR did win. JSR went to the LCQ and he was on the very outside gate for the main event. And yes, I am 99.9% sure that he was told when the gate would drop, uh, for the main event. Now, if you don't know anything about Montreal Supercross, it is basically a glorified John Sebastian Waugh, uh, reception. And that's fine. He's from, you know, just North of Montreal and he's Canadian hero, so to think that they would want to help him have a chance to win or get on the podium or whatever by telling him when the gate was going to drop is not far-fetched. Um, just being at that race, they would do anything and everything they could do to help JSR because that's really what's going to be the difference between a successful event and so-so, right? Having JSR at the front made everything for that race. So I heard it then I heard it. I've heard it since then. I, I'm the only reason I'm not a hundred percent sure is because I didn't hear, personally hear them say it to him. But other than that, yeah, they told him when the gate was going to drop and I've gone back and watched that race on, you know, on video and he rockets out of the gate. I mean, it's one of those things where he knew, right. He counted one, two, three, four, and just dumped the clutch and it got him the whole shot and, and he won. Um, and I, I was faster than him all day and all night. But yeah, he, he won the race. I got a crappy start and that's my fault. Uh, I don't have anyone to blame, but myself for not winning. If I would have got out front with him, I believe I would have won pretty easily, but I didn't. He, he did what he had to do and he won it and I got a bad start and I didn't. So no hard feelings for me. Stuff like that happens all the time. It is what it is, but Mike, um, sorry, I didn't get to meet you back then. I don't, I don't remember you, but uh, yeah, that rumor that he got the gate drop is true. The rumor that it was fixed. That's definitely not true. I would have, there's no way. I mean, yeah. Okay. If you gave me a hundred grand or something, I would have absolutely let JSR win, but I, I wanted to win that race. And I was furious leaving that weekend that I didn't win because I had worked my butt off to be ready for that race. And I absolutely felt like it was my race to win and, and I didn't get it done. So, uh, yeah, there was, uh, certainly nothing to the rumor that it was fixed anyway. Good, good memories from back then. You know, the funny thing about that race in the main event, I almost crashed so hard and I was doing this triple up and you'd have to have been there or go back and watch it. But I was doing this triple up that nobody else was doing. Actually, that's a lie. I think Jeff Gibson did it with me after I did it. He also did it but it was brutally hard and it was like a step up triple and the downside was super steep and the takeoff was really flat, right? So what would happen is you would take off and you'd have to hit it really fast and you wouldn't really hit the downside at all. You'd almost like skip off the top of the downside and then land just before the next jump and then double. And it was crazy fast because the alternative was basically to slow down and then double and then take off from that big takeoff and then triple out. Well, I was going three, two versus the two, three, and I would carry way more speed and just blow through the section. I was passing somebody there almost every lap and JSR never did it. And if I was behind him, I feel like I could have passed him there uh, in that section alone. But, uh, again, you know, going back to that night, I almost crashed my brains out on that jump. I came up a little short and clipped it and I saved it. I endowed off that and then endowed off the next double and feed off the pegs and just, you know, completely out of control and somehow found a way to save it. And, and I knew after the race, I even told my dad, I'm like, I should have, I should have crashed there and probably hurt myself. It would have been that big of a crash and I got away with it. So I go into the next weekend 
at us open in Vegas. And the first turn of the first heat race, I crash and I get run over and, and my leg breaks. So I, <laughs> I have a broken leg and, and I'm laying there on the ground and I'm going, you know what? I should have had, I should have broke my leg last week in that big crash. This was almost like a, a payback for getting away with one. <laughs> and, and I know the world doesn't work that way, but that's exactly how I felt is like, you know, I got lucky last week. I didn't hurt myself. I didn't even crash. And I got this, I got money and a podium and all that stuff. It basically just caught up with me a week later. I had this stupid tip over and, and Matt Bonnie happened to run right into my leg and break it. So just, it's funny how, uh, how things work out that way. But I appreciate everybody for listening this week. Definitely a different podcast this week than kind of how it's been. No story time. But the tire giveaway before we get too far is going to go to Bob Magner. And I'll reach out to you, Bob, via email. But I just liked his questions. They were different with the tire sidewall and then the questions about Roxon, um, and then the personal question too. So pretty lengthy questions and well thought out and different range of subjects too. And, and like I said, there is no rhyme or reason and we're going to give away more tires. So if you didn't win this week, please continue sending, um, kind of have the green light from Pirelli to, uh, to give out some product in this downtime. So I'm going to continue to do that. I do appreciate all of you that did send emails. Honestly, I didn't read one of these this week that I thought was kind of subpar, right? So Kudos to all of you. Thank you for doing that. I lo- actually loved the JSR question. That's funny because most people didn't realize that. And I knew something was fishy when he hole shotted from the very outside gate in the main event. That's just the way that start was set up. It was really, really unlikely that he could do that without some help. And he, he didn't even get good starts all night before that. So whatever. Good question. Uh, from Mike on that, but congratulations, Bob. I will reach out to you and to everyone that listens to this podcast. Thank you very much. I hope we get to go racing soon. I believe it's right around the corner one way or another, because you know, the country is opening back up and there's a lot of pressure on these, uh, you know, whether it's Felder MX sports or whatever to honor contracts and to go racing. Plus they know all the teams are just getting killed on not getting, you know, full payments from sponsors and all the, the bad things that happen when uh, series are interrupted as far as them receiving their, their paychecks too, so they can pay employees and mechanics and yada, all the way down the line. So let's hope that the country heals and we can go racing and the economy rebounds because that's the best for everybody. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next Sunday. We should have some actual real news breaking this week. And I keep teasing you guys that I'm going to do a midweek update, but I just haven't had anything to really give you yet. But maybe this week's the week. So we'll talk to you then. See you.